Welcome to the EDM Podcast, a show where I, Sam Matler, interview successful artists, engineers, and people in the industry. I've just been in Melbourne for a week with family, uh, trying to relax, that kind of thing. The weather sucked, of course, it's Melbourne in winter, uh, but what's new? But now I'm back into the swing of things, which is good. Uh, thank you for all your feedback on episode 60 with Joey Suki. A lot of you liked the different format, but an equal amount of you preferred the normal uh, question and answer format, the unedited uh, version. And so I'll be sticking to the Q&A format uh, simply because it takes less time to edit. Uh, the, the episode with Joey took a long, long time. It was cutting out a lot of stuff that you would have heard if it was a traditional interview. Uh, but every now and again, I might just take that narrative driven approach uh, when I think it suits, when it's a story like Joey's, which is uh, pretty dramatic and inspiring. Today's interview, though, is with Ian Shepard. He's a mastering engineer and blogger at productionadvice.co.uk. Uh, he's been working in the industry as a mastering engineer for decades, and he has a wealth of advice to share on all things mastering. He's also the founder of Dynamic Range Day, teacher of the Home Mastering Masterclass course, and he also has two plugins for sale, Perception and Dynamiter. In this interview, we talk about a range of things, including what mastering is, whether you really need to learn it as a producer, the loudness war and how to fight against it, and the importance of using reference tracks. You can find the full show notes for this episode at edmprod.com forward slash 62. That is edmprod.com forward slash 62. This episode is brought to you by EDM Foundations. EDM Foundations is my course for new producers, those who've been producing for under 12 months or even those who've just started. The whole idea of the EDM Foundations course is that you learn the fundamentals of music production by actually doing and not just learning the theoretical stuff. The course consists of over 12 hours worth of streamable video where I walk you through the creation of three songs and give you advice and tips for working on your own original alongside them. We've had over 500 people sign up for this course. Many of them have had great results. If you want to learn more about the course, head over to edmfoundations.com. That is edmfoundations.com. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Ian Shepard. Ian, how's it going? I'm good. Thank you. Very good. Now you do a lot of stuff. You, uh, you're a mastering engineer. You run a website called productionadvice.co.uk. You also run a podcast called The Mastering Show. You have two plugins and you founded an event called Dynamic Grange Day. You do a lot of stuff, but I'm curious to hear how you got into all of this. Um, what was the very start? You, you were interested in musical audio. When did that happen and what has the journey been like so far? So my, uh, the, the first time I got, so I've always been interested in music um, and I, I played trombone from the age of eight, maybe. I didn't kind of really get passionate about music until I was sort of 16 when I um, I kind of got to the, the right level in my youth orchestra that you started playing some really serious music to, to a decent standard. And then I suddenly, it suddenly clicked and I got it. But I was into all kinds of embarrassing 80s pop and rock music, hair metal and all the rest of it before that. Um, but the, the, the first memory I have of like kind of, um, uh, of audio was listening to a radio series called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, I don't know whether people will be aware of that. It's, um, I mean, now it's been a, there's been a TV series, there's been a film and all the rest of it. But it was it was sci comedy sci fi 
on on BBC Radio 4. Um, and I just kind of picked it up in the middle of it and I was listening to this thing and this spaceship uh, lands on this alien world called Magrathea and you hear the spaceship fly across the top of your head in stereo. Um, and I, I remember kind of looking up at my dad and going, the spaceship just flew across my... And he was like, yeah, that's called stereo. I'll tell you about it later. And that was kind of... That's the first time that I remember just being fascinated by sound and by audio. And it was kind of a downhill uh, slope from there on. Um, I did physics and maths and music uh, at A-levels, which is the, the school qualifications you do at kind of age uh, 17, 18. Um, I didn't want to give up either. I knew I, was, I knew I didn't want to be a professional physicist, but I knew that I wasn't good enough to be a professional music, uh, musician. Um, I didn't want to give either of them up. So I ended up doing a joint degree course of physics and music. Um, and I also worked on the sound crew at the, the university union there doing monitors and front of house for, for bands. And I recorded an album for some friends of mine on a, an eight track Tascam cassette Porter studio, um, which I don't know, maybe lots of people listening to this will be too young to remember that. But uh, so just just having fun with all of that. And then so I left university and I kind of got depressed again because I think, well, now what am I going to do? And then it occurred to me that I could work in a studio and I was lucky enough I just kind of fell into mastering. Most people, they have a career as a musician or a producer or a recording engineer or something, and then they become a mastering engineer. But I just got a job at this company called SRT. Um, I, I sent them a letter thinking it was a cassette duplication plant, um, which it had been, and they had also done vinyl pressing back in the day, but they had kind of stepped sideways into into digital CD mastering, which was a new thing then. Um, this is over 20 years ago now. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it turned out that they had just signed a 120 record deal with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, biggest classical contract ever, ever signed. Um, and they were doing all kinds of, I mean, not kind of major label stuff, but, but some, some great, um, sort of catalog remastering and reissuing and some great independent work. Um, and I was just trained as the ground up from there. Um, and I've kind of, just followed that path ever since. I, I worked there for 15 years and around about that time I started up my own blog just as an experiment, just to see whether people wanted to read the sort of, you know, the um, ramblings of a, an English mastering engineer. Um, <laughs> and it, it turned out, well, actually what happened is the um, Death Magnetic, the Metallica album that was super loud and got everybody really excited, came out and I, I wrote about that and it got picked up by the by the media and ended up in uh, Wired magazine and um, the Wall Street Journal, all kinds of bizarre places. Um, so that I kind of was to some degree responsible for that little burst of publicity, and people really? were really interested in that. Yeah, and and uh, well, wow. I, I, as far as I know, I was the first person to to talk about it, um, and it all followed on from there. Um, and and that kind of you know that gave me a kickstart for the blog. That gave me a a bigger audience of people who were just interested in these kind of issues and it, it, it's grown from there um when the company that i worked for closed um i, I mean i had already left to start my own company but that meant i didn't have any restrictions they didn't want me um telling people how to master their own music i, I knew that people would want to know that and i i knew that there were people who you know were never going to want to or would afford to pay to come to a professional mastering engineer and I kind of felt like, well, if they're going to do it, I'd like them to do the best job they can. And I'd like to help them do that. Um, that <laughs> my bosses disagreed with me 
but yeah, when the company closed, that kind of restriction was was gone. Um, and, you know, so I went on from there. So now I've got a couple of different info products um, and uh, there's an online course, the Home Mastering Masterclass, um, you know, which just aims to help people, yeah, do a better job of this stuff. What is your definition of mastering? The technical definition of mastering is just to create a production master. Traditionally, you'd have a band, they would record 10, 12 songs, whatever it was going to be. They might do that in several different studios. They'd certainly do it over a, a long period of time. they get them as good as they could be, uh, but they wouldn't necessarily fit together well to make a really satisfying listen. Um, so the mastering engineer's job was to compile those in the right running order with the right gaps and the, all of the right technical information on the on the CD master um, for manufacturing and also to balance the levels, um, even out the EQ and the bass or the, the, the EQ to try and uh, make the songs work together to flow as a sequence and to fit together as a whole. So that's kind of stage one. My personal definition is that the mastering engineer's job is to make the music sound the best that it can be and basically do whatever that takes, whether it be just a kind of little tweaks and polishes or kind of full on um, rescue mission. Um but one analogy that I like to use is, it's not my analogy, um, it came from, uh, oh, I've forgotten the name of the engineer who did, there's a really famous mastering, Howie Weinberg um, is a really famous mastering engineer. He came up with this analogy and I kind of, I've taken it to, the, to another level in terms of doing a blog post and kind of expanding on it. He said, mastering is like Photoshop for audio. So, you know, if you, if you take a digital photograph, well, if you take any kind of photograph and then it gets to the point where you think, actually, I might like to print that out and put it on the wall. Suddenly you get that much bit more fussy about the way that it sounds. You know, you might, uh, maybe if it's a landscape shot, you might go in with the clone tool and try and get rid of the power lines in the background, you know, or you might fix the red eye or you, um, I don't know, somebody's photobombing. You might (laughs) clean them out of the background. You might adjust the the framing of it. You know, you might change the shape to say, okay, I'm going to make it square or I'm going to make it look more widescreen. You might tweak the colour balance and the contrast, all that kind of stuff. And there are analogies for all of those kind of things in audio. Um, so you're, you're, you're optimising what you've got. Another analogy is colour grading in a film. You know, they, they shoot all the raw footage and then they put it all together and then they go in and they just do whatever they can to make it the best it can be. Um, so, and that's, I think that's a, that's a good way to think about mastering. A lot of people listening to this, they, know, they, they hear that, they know what mastering is. They feel they need to learn mastering. Uh, do you think all producers need to learn mastering? And if not, why not? Um, I'm going to go with yes and no. So, so I'll start with no. I mean, you absolutely don't need to learn it because there are people like me who who do it professionally. You know, we do pretty much nothing else day in, day out. Um, we're experienced. We're um, expert, hopefully. Um, we're fast. Um, and in terms of the time it might take you to learn to do a really good job yourself, I would say we're affordable. Um, you know, it, it depends because if people are doing this as a hobby and they do it for an enjoyment, then there's, it's, it's not actually cost, you know, they're using time when they might otherwise be watching TV or reading a book or whatever. So in that case, I guess we're not affordable in comparison to, to basically free. Um, but if you, you know, if if this is your, uh, if you're making a living from music or if you're taking time out of uh, the rest, other parts of your life to 
to do this, then, you know, if, if, if songwriting or, you know, writing, um, dance music or whatever is, is your skill and your passion, um, you kind of already have all of those skills. Um, it may be that actually you're not that interested in the final polishing stage. Um, cause I mean, I like to say that mastering is quite simple and I think it, it is at its best, but it's kind of, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of detail and things to consider in there. Um, so, so yeah, you could spend an awful lot of time doing it. So in that case, I would say, no, just find a mastering engineer who is in your price range, who, whose work you like, who you get on with and get them to master it for you. Um, on the other hand, so I run the, the home mastering masterclass course, and I know that lots of people who take the course don't actually want to master their own music. Um, they just do it to learn more about the mastering process. And lots of people have said to me that they found value in understanding what mastering can do, what it can't do, you know, uh, what they can do to be best prepared for it and to um, to get the most out of the process. So in that sense, I think there's definitely value to, to understanding mastering. You know, I mean, even if you're not going to try and master your own music at all and you, you think, yeah, that's great, I'll go to... Um, a pro mastering engineer, I would invite you to, if you can, attend the session so you can sit in and talk to the engineer and see and hear what they're doing and why. Um, or if not, you know, just strike up a conversation and get get some information from the engineer about what they've done and why. And, you know, it's a great learning process um, in terms of, you know, all, all this stuff that we kind of obsess about when you, because I've recorded and, and I, I used to write electronica kind of way back um, when I still had time. <laughs> um, so I've kind of been through that creative process. So I understand. And it, uh, I think you, you learn uh, a lot about, you, you have, you get locked into all the, you know, I want to do this and you have all these goals and then you kind of get to the end of the process and it's like, well, did that work or not? And I think taking a step back and kind of seeing the thing, an overview of, you know, two or three songs or a whole album and listening to them in context on a, on a different monitoring system um, getting somebody else's opinion. Um, that's a valuable thing that a mastering engineer can provide is just to kind of come in and, and say, you know, the mastering engineer doesn't know that you struggled for a week getting your kick drum sound right. Yeah, You know, yeah. he'll just come in and say, that sounds great. Or, you know what, that would sound even better if you did this. Or occasionally you might say, you know what, that's not really working. Maybe we should think about that again. And it, it's hard to get that perspective yourself. You know, when it's your own music, you... The, the risk is that you make excuses for it. You know, you tell, you, and I mean, I've done it myself, you know, you, you know, the stories of why the vocal take isn't perfect, you know, or why that edit doesn't quite work or whatever it is. Um, and yeah, you kind of, the temptation then is to leave it. Whereas somebody else might come in and go, no, 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 you need to do this, this, there, job done. Um, because they're coming at it objectively. They come in objectively with a fresh pair of ears um, and with all of that context of everything else they work on and listen to, um, and it can it can just be really helpful, really valuable. So um, I've forgotten what your question was, but maybe I answered it. The the need to learn mastering, but one thing you said which which I thought was interesting is, you know, a lot of people take your course to just learn more about mastering, and I think that's important because. I don't think this happens anymore. Maybe it does, but I remember back four years ago, there would be a lot of people posting SoundCloud links to their music. Someone would give feedback and they'd point a few things out and then the person would respond uh, trying to justify 
or like defend the, the criticism and say, oh, it's not mastered yet. But the issue is it wasn't even mixed. Like it sounded horrible and mastering wasn't going to fix that. So I think if people understood, you know, at what point will mastering actually help? You know, if a song is mixed poorly, mastering isn't going to make it sound amazing. Uh, but there are quite a few people who think it does. Think it's like a silver bullet in a sense. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. There's, you know, um, mastering can make a great song sound fantastic. It can make a good song sound great and it can make, uh, well, I'm saying song, I would, mastering can't affect the song, right? Cause the song is, is hooks and lyrics and melodies and all that kind of stuff. But that the sound of it, a mix can make a great mix, uh, sound fantastic. Uh, a, a not quite there mix. It can probably make it sound okay or even pretty good. Um, I mean, it's amazing what you can achieve in mastering, but I think the question people should ask themselves is, is that the best way to do it? You know, I mean, so the most common thing for me, I mean, I know there are lots of mastering engineers there out there who will kind of kick stuff straight back to the clients. They'll go, no, you need to do this, 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 and this. And the clients go, oh, thank you. And they, they scurry off and they spend another couple of weeks working on it and it comes back. That's not my experience. Most of my clients come to me um, and they're like, okay, you can do this today, right? Because it has to go to the plant tomorrow. So I know that if I'm going to say that kind of thing to them, it's just going to be huge stress. They're not going to thank me for that, you know? So I take it and I say, okay, this is what it is. They've done their best with it. I'm going to do my best with it. Um, so in that situation, yeah, if there's, uh, say, a majorly boomy kick drum sound or whatever, you can probably come up with a solution for it in the mastering that they will be happy with. They'll certainly be much happier with it than they were before. That's not necessarily the best solution. It would probably be better to say for them to take another couple of days to tweak that boomy kick drum sound or, you know, the uh, the fact that, you know, there's way too much hi-hat in comparison to the, the synth line that's going running through or whatever it is. Um, most things are better fixed in the mix, um, especially because that way you you as an artist learn more. You know, if you rather than having somebody else kind of patch up what wasn't working about what you had. If you can have a conversation with somebody and they can say, hey, it would be even better if you do this, this and this, that's a really valuable experience because you can take that knowledge and use it in future. Um, and I, th I think it feels better, you know, to to, to, to feel empowered that you, you've, you've taken the music to a higher level um, as part of that process. So, yeah, uh, you can do... A surprising amount in mastering, especially considering it's just a stereo file, but that's not necessarily the best solution. Um, and in an ideal world, mastering is just the tiny little changes, you know, just half a dB here, little tweak there, you know, just shift the EQ slightly. And it's still amazing because, I mean, even after all these years, it amazes me that the you get this thing where, you know, that the, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You know, you do all these tiny little things and you think, well, I, maybe I shouldn't even bother. And then you listen to the whole thing and suddenly it just works so much better um, as a sequence. Um, so, that, you know, it's it's a really valuable process. Um, but yeah, I think it's the more you understand it and how it kind of, I mean, there's another thing, which is that um, we're probably going to talk about loudness at some point. You know, one of the things that typically happens in mastering is that it gets that the loudness is increased. Um, you know, I see it as my job to, to get it into what I call the loudness sweet spot. You don't want it to be too loud, 
but it needs to be loud enough so that it translates to the widest possible range of playback systems. And there's inevitably a certain amount of compromise or trade-off involved in the process of making something louder, right? You're using a bit of compression, maybe a bit of limiting, whatever it might be. Um, that's going to affect the impact that certain elements and it's going to change the impact that certain elements of the mix can have. And when it's successful, you you end up with something that just sounds better and it's in the loudness sweet spot, so it's going to translate better and you've got a win-win. But sometimes it changes things in ways that you as an artist don't expect. You know, it might, let's say, uh, you know, in order to get the the kick and the bass line to, to balance better, it changes the amount of punch there was in the kick drum. Um, hopefully that's in a good way, but actually you might kind of go, well, actually, now that I know that, I'm going to do something slightly different next time I mix a song so that it's going to work even better when it goes through the mastering process. So I think kind of understanding those things, how things can change and what the effect can be, is also valuable. Um, every so often somebody will, kind of, somebody will have a thing where they say, oh, I love the fact that it sounds bigger and wider now, but also I'm hearing all the reverb a lot more. Um, and therefore, actually, maybe that's a bit too much and maybe next time I'll go a little bit easier on that particular effect. you know. Or they say, well, I love all the extra high-end clarity that's in there but now I'm feeling like the top end of the vocal is a little bit aggressive or, you know, that percussion instrument is kind of a little bit more prominent than I intended. So going through the process and learning that kind of stuff can be really valuable as well. Absolutely. I like two things you said. Uh, the first is this, when you're working with a master engineer, you learn a lot. And I remember getting my first track mastered uh, from Nick. And, and I know that Nick has... His approach is to give feedback first and get the mix as good as it can be. And so I send my song off, he sends it back saying, uh, here are like three or four things you need to fix, which I never thought about. They were very technical uh, things. This is too loud. This is going to clip if we master it, so on and so on. And that was very, very helpful. Uh, the second thing you mentioned is try to sit in on the session. And I think that's really cool, especially if you do not have as a producer, a good studio or a good monitoring system uh, because it'll probably be, at least it was for me, the most one of the most terrifying experiences of my life when I heard one of my songs on a, an actual system with good acoustic treatment and I was just blown away at how bad it sounded. Um, and after all these years of making music on you know, an untreated room, uh, I actually got to hear how it sounded objectively. No, absolutely. I think it's, uh, there's, I mean, just as a little tangent, there's a weird thing, which is that, yeah, uh, the, you know, the, the monitoring environment for somebody doing mastering should be extremely good, extremely neutral, yes. extremely revealing and extremely accurate. You might think that that would make everything sound better. Actually, it tends to make everything sound worse <laughs> because it reveals <laughs> yeah. all of the problems that were kind of hidden um, on less uh, accurate revealing monitoring systems so yeah no I, exactly i think it's I th i'm pretty sure nick said that um communication is really really important um in mastering and when people ask me you know how do i get the most out of the mastering process that's what i say is you know get communication there because now you there are these online mastering services you know where you, you you upload your files and some engineer you probably don't even know his or her name works on it and then you get the files back and i know people who've sent me stuff that they sent to one of those services and they say oh, i'm not really happy with the result and i listen to it and i go no i can understand why but have you have you talked to them about it 
And they can say, well, no. And, you know, that to me makes no sense. Um, I'm sure if um, there are some companies where the engineers just don't want to talk to people. And that for me is, is, you know, I would say if that's the message you get back from a mastering house, find somewhere else. Um, You know, you don't want to get into a huge kind of debate with multiple emails going backwards and forwards. But any mastering engineer, in my opinion, should be open to talking about, you know, what the goals are for the project. Have you got any reference tracks? Have you got anything you're kind of unhappy with or insecure that you hope that they're going to be able to improve for you, you know, um, and then they should give you feedback. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I completely agree with Nick in the sense that I, in an ideal situation, I would always give feedback. That's not always possible. Um, but wherever wherever you can, that's the best idea. So mastering at home, it's not something you necessarily recommend, but you understand that people are going to do it. Uh, the reason a lot of people do it, as you mentioned, is because they can't afford to get their work mastered elsewhere, or it's just not a good use of money if it's if they're a hobbyist, uh, or they just want to give home mastering a go. What advice would you give to these people who are trying to master their own music at home? Uh, you want to go to my website. Click the button that says mastering at the top and sign up for the free seven part e-course. You get seven emails over seven weeks um, that will kind of talk you through trying to get better results um, yourself. I mean, no, that's clearly an outrageous bit of self-promotion. Oh, that's that's why you're on the podcast to self-promote. It is. And I mean, it's, you know, I do think there's, you know, I've spent years now building up. There's a ton of great content there to help people. Um, And it, I do think it's worth trying to learn. I mean, the reason I set up the site was that I saw so much, you know, these days with YouTube, there's so much information out there. Some of it is great and some of it is really dodgy. Um, And some of it is kind of somewhere in between where it's a mixture of good and bad information. And I just wanted to, you know, put what in my opinion is kind of clear, helpful advice um, and make it, easily available for people um, so they can get good results. Um, Being a bit more practical about it, you know, the kind of things that I suggest um, on that e-course are, I mean, we talked about having a different perspective when you listen in a mastering studio. I mean, you're right that the mastering should be very high quality, but even if it's, I mean, it's valuable just hearing something that's different. You know, we all spend our time locked in studios day in, day out, listening to stuff, just hearing a different perspective, you know, taking it out into the real world and listening to it on a range of systems can be valuable. So one of the things I suggest, I mean, you already mentioned it, is that people get a really high quality pair of headphones. I I don't actually think it's possible to master purely on headphones, certainly not for me personally, but I do think, um, you know, I use Sennheiser HD650s. They're almost as expensive as a, a kind of, low medium low end pair of monitors um but like you said they take the room out of the equation you know however good our speakers are i mean no room is perfect um and even if you've got some acoustic treatment in there and even if the room's a great shape and a good size and all the rest of it the room is still going to interact with what comes out of the monitors and affect what you hear so having a decent pair of headphones gives you that alternative perspective so you can just listen to it and you think, oh, well, on the headphones, it sounds a bit like this. And chances are, when you go back and then listen to it on the speakers again, you'll think, oh, yeah, now I can hear that. And you can make some adjustments. Um, that can be really helpful. I think the other thing I would say is 
uh, find some reference tracks and use reference material. So if there's a song in the style, the genre that you're producing that you know or you think sounds amazing everywhere, um, you know, on your earbuds, out in the car, wherever it is, that's going to make a good reference track. Bring that into the studio and compare what you're doing with that reference track. Um, that way, if there's something quirky about your room, you're going to hear the reference track with that quirky. Let's say there's a um, you've got a, a very common to not have quite enough bass at sort of 70, 80 hertz in a fairly small um, home studio um, because of the cancellation of the, the sound waves bouncing around the room. Um, so when you put your reference track in, you'll hear that with a little bit less of that 70 to 80 hertz and you can compare it with yours and think, OK, well, I want to make it sound like the reference track because the reference track sounds great everywhere. So I'm actually going to take back a little bit of that that frequency range so that they match more closely. Your song won't sound quite as awesome in the room, but when you take it out into the world, it should sound better. Whereas if you hadn't made that adjustment you'd probably have put too much in at that frequency, right? Because you're not hearing enough in the room. So then everywhere else in the world, it's going to sound thick and muddy because of that uh, that extra bass that you've got in there. So yeah, reference tracks are, are a really uh, valuable strategy. It's quite a painful strategy because, you know, you're you're comparing it probably against some of the best stuff there is. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's good pain. <laughs> it's, it makes you, it makes you better. It's valuable. The one thing, other thing I would say about that is, um, when you use reference tracks, turn them down. Um, because we, we talked about mastering, making everything louder. If you bring in a reference track, you're comparing a mastered version with a mix. Um, if you try and make your mix as loud as the master, you're kind of, you're getting ahead of yourself. I, I'm a big believer in making the mastering process separate from the mixing process, you know, because of this whole thing of having another perspective, maybe taking a bit of time, um, you know, listening to it in a different way. Um, if you, yeah, and so if you try and make the mix match somebody else's master, I think you're just going to get yourself tied up in knots. Um, whereas if you bring the master in and turn it down so it's a similar loudness to your mix, then you can make... Um, fair comparisons between the two you know you can go okay because so here's here's the, the the thing about loudness is that it fools us um you often hear people say louder sounds better the reason for that is our brains uh interpret louder sounds as having a bit more bass and a bit more treble so if you take a song if you have a version of a song and then you turn it up by say a db and you listen to the two back to back you might not notice a fairly small difference in level, but the one that's a little bit louder will sound a little bit richer and more open and exciting to you. Um, and nobody knows quite why that is. Um, the The joke I make is always that um, it could be an evolutionary thing. You know, um, there's a value to our brains paying more attention to the saber-toothed tiger that's breathing down our neck rather than the one that's over there watching a herd of gazelles, right? You know, stuff that's closer to you is going to be louder and is likely to be more interesting or more dangerous. Um, so maybe that's why. But it, it is a fact um, that just turning stuff up makes us think it sounds better, even though it sounds the same, it's just louder. And that's the root of the loudness war. And that's why everybody wants loudness. And it's why it's important when you make a comparison between two things that you take that out of the equation, right? Because you know, let's say you have a reference track that's only a couple of dBs louder than your song. 
if you just bring it in and don't turn it down, you're going to listen to it and just kind of start banging your head on the desk thinking, well, it just sounds better than, and it might not sound better. Mm. It's just a bit louder. So by turning the level down to match what you're listening to, you can make a fair comparison. You've taken the, what I call the loudness deception out of the equation. And then you can, then if it sounds better than your song, you can think about why that might be and kind of make some changes to try and get closer to it. Um, and that's actually, that's, you know, just on a tangent, that's the idea behind one of my plugins, um, Perception. It's it's something that mastering engineers do all the time because, you know, you get, you get some songs, you you make the changes and probably you make it at least a little bit louder. If you don't loudness match when you do the comparison between the before and after, you're going to fool yourself and your clients into automatically thinking it sounds better just because it's louder. So it's really important once you've got what you think is a good setting to reduce the level before you do that comparison. And that takes a lot of time and skill to learn to do that well. Um, and the perception plugin is basically an automated procedure for that. So it enables you, you just click a button and it will loudness match the before and after with your mastering processing. And then you can do, it compensates for the sync. Then you can just bypass and listen to before and after and hear it, hear a really fair objective comparison um, between the two. So it's, that's a really, that's a kind of recurring theme in what I'm talking about and what I'm doing is uh, not to get fooled by loudness. Um, yeah, because that, I mean, that manifests itself in so many different ways. Um, I remember I used to, <laughs> uh, first year of production, I would add compression to stuff that automatically had three, four dB of makeup gain. And of course I thought it sounded better uh, when this element or instrument didn't need compression at all. But because it bumped up the volume by three dB, I thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, it sounded better, but it was just, louder it crops up everywhere if you go to somebody's mastering website and they have before and after comparisons on the site and the after sounds louder than the before then be suspicious yes. <laughs> um, or yeah. at least find out a way to correct for it when you listen to make sure that it probably does sound better if they're you know reputable uh engineers but it, it's much harder to hear it i mean the other place i notice it is in, is in plugins you know you call it the default preset on plugin xyz um, and you think, God, even just like that, it sounds better. Um, and more often than not, it's half a dB or a dB louder. Um, uh, you know, and maybe that's just something that happened and they forgot to sort it out. Or maybe they do that to make sure that you buy <laughs> their plugins when you try the demo. <laughs> you know, it's so, yeah, it's it, it's everywhere. This effect. The loudness war. Uh, this is a controversial topic, but one I love talking about. But I have to admit that I stay far away from the debate because it's uh, it's a bit messy. Tell me what the loudness war is and and your stance on it. Okay, so I mean we talked about why people think louder sounds better at least. Um, the w w that effect, the idea that louder sounds better, um, has been used by engineers throughout time. I used to use it in my career, um, you know, as a mastering engineer, let's say you get something that sounds almost perfect. You think, well, what am I going to do with this? There's this little knowledge in the back of your head that you should just turn it up by half a dB. The client is going to think it sounds better, you know? Um, right. And over time, there's this temptation for people to make stuff louder and louder and louder, just in terms of trying to sound a little bit better than everything else that's out there. You know, if you can get 
an improvement in sound for free by making something a little bit louder. Why would you not do that? Um, that's fine, but the the bit that people miss is that louder only sounds better when you have enough headroom to do it cleanly or artistically. Okay, um, and in uh, so if you think about uh, a really high quality PA at a in a club or a, at a, at a, a gig. Um, you can probably crank that to the point where it's actually painful to listen to without having any detrimental effect on the music quality. Um, that's not true in digital audio because, as everybody knows, you've got this zero dB limit at the top of the digital scale. If you start pushing stuff up beyond that, it will clip, um, slice the tops off the waveforms, and that quickly starts to sound really ugly. So you have to use something like compression or limiting or um, saturation to prevent the clipping. That works up to a point. But again, once you get past a certain point, uh, it, that starts to have a detrimental effect on the music. You lose the transients. Yeah. You lose the transients. Uh, you lose the contrast. You lose the punch, the clarity, the space, the depth. It, um, I mean, one of my, I, I like to talk about this thing that I think of as the loudness cliff. Um, you know, I mean, if, if you think of getting louder as pushing a boulder up a, up a mountain, you know, you want to be at the top of the mountain, the same height as everybody else, you know. Um, but the further up you push, eventually you get to a point where the, it starts to, the slope starts to tail off as you get towards the top. And then you're kind of on a plateau where you're pushing the boulder and it's not actually getting any higher because you're at the top. Um, if you push it too far, it falls off the other side and gets smashed on the rocks at the bottom. <laughs> Um, and the same thing applies to audio loudness, digital audio in particular. You know, you you want it to be loud enough, like I say, so that it translates, so that the balance between the, the verse and the chorus and everything is, or the, you know, the build and the drop in EDM terms is right. Um, but if you push it too far, it's going to get smashed. Um, and it's, it's so for me, it's all about finding that sweet spot. And the loudness war Basically, you know, over time, the levels have gone up and up and up and up to the point where now they are insane. I mean, so, you know, when I started mastering 20 odd years ago, uh, I we used a VU meter, a needle meter to calibrate, to, to measure loudness. And it was set so that uh, zero was at minus 14 on a digital scale. If you look at um, typical EDM uh, releases these days, mainstream stuff. Uh, I mean, th that that needle would be completely pegged. If you wanted it to to measure zero now, you would have to adjust it so that instead of minus fourteen, it was at minus four. So over those twenty years, we've had ten dBs of increase in level in in the loudest stuff. Not everything, but in the loudest stuff. Um, and for me, once you get past kind of minus ten, maybe minus eight at the loudest moments that's at the point where you start to roll off the cliff. So, you know, we're kind of three or four dBs beyond what I consider to be the limit, where basically you're not making stuff sound better anymore, you're just damaging it. Um, the, the thing is, and sorry to interrupt, you know, a lot of people, I think, recognise that it sounds bad, because it does. If you listen to a song that's slammed, it actually uh, gives you ear fatigue very quickly. Some of the releases that come out, especially listening to them with headphones, I get to the end of the four minute track and I'm like, what was that? I mean, that was just, <laughs> it was, that's just insane. But what happens, especially for bedroom producers and, and I've experienced this as well, 
you finish a song, you try and master it, um, keep some dynamics in there. You compare it to a commercial release and the difference is light and day. I mean, um, day and night. Uh, and, and so there's this pressure to just push it up, 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 up and up. And it, it gets to the point where it's like, well, I shouldn't care about dynamics because it needs to compete with all this other music. Yeah. Um, now the interesting thing is that that's starting to change because of online streaming services, basically. Um, the, the number one source of complaints from listeners to music, wherever you like TV, radio, iTunes, Spotify, whatever is, is big changes in level. Everybody finds it annoying for, to get blasted by a really loud song or for a, a quiet song to suddenly disappear to the point where you can't hear it. So people like YouTube and Spotify and Pandora and Tidal, they want to give you a great user experience. So they have introduced this thing called loudness management or loudness normalization. So basically they measure the loudness of everything on their service and they play everything at a similar level. Um, And recently Spotify changed the level that they were using. They used to be the loudest. Now pretty all of the services are in the range of minus 14 to minus 16 loudness units full scale um we could talk about those in a minute if you want it's just a way yeah, of measuring yeah. loudness so if you think about one of those edm tunes that i was talking about that's up at minus four that's going to get turned down on all of those services by 10 dbs which is a huge amount right and that means that if you compare it to a piece of uh, well, let's call it classic edm but i mean okay so my favorite example is the first justice album which I think is an amazing sounding album, certainly com- very commercially successful. Um, that's mastered around about the kind of minus 10, minus eight point that I mentioned. So that's also going to get turned down a bit, but only two or three dBs. And what happens when you listen to those two songs back to back is the one that was actually mastered quieter in the first place has got six to eight dBs more room to punch in it, right? Because it's got more headroom. It wasn't slammed right up, up against the limit and then turned down. It was a, roughly the right level to begin with and it's got extra space to work in so and, and more and more people are becoming aware of this and you know i mean i don't know like the last uh daft punk album um was pretty dynamic by modern standards meaning it wasn't a real loudness war casualty they didn't ram it straight up against zero db um and it sounds amazing everybody agrees that that album sounds fantastic and that's part of the reason why um and there are a ton of other examples. What's interesting about EDM is that uh, there's no loudness normalization, no loudness management in the clubs. So, so I hear two things. People say two things when I talk about loudness because you know you, you said I've, I founded Dynamic Range Day. You know, I I'm it really upsets me when music is unnecessarily crushed to make it super loud. So I've been camp- especially when it's a good piece, especially when it's a, a, a great think, tune. Oh, it's so well written, and this kind of just kills it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I've been campaigning on this issue for years, and and lots of people are, are listening, and and I think we're starting to see a change in what people are doing. But people who make EDM say there are two reasons. One is they're saying it's part of the sound. That kind of slammed sound is part of the the sound of the genre. And the other one is they say that it needs to be loud for the clubs. Uh, if we leave the first one, because I genuinely believe, I mean, the thing is you can get a slammed sound and then build a mix with more dynamics. 
So you can have both. I think you can have your cake and eat it in that sense. And I'm, uh, I have a couple of videos planned for my blog that are going to demonstrate that hopefully. Um, so if people are interested in that, then head over there, keep an eye on what I'm doing on the, or on the YouTube channel and you should see that. May, may even be out by the time I've done, by the, by the time this episode gets broadcast. But um, the the issue of the clubs, you know, the argument is, uh, let's say, you know, DJ Fred is on before me and his stuff is all slammed. If I come on and try and play a load of dynamic tunes, I can't turn them up as loud as his without clipping on the mixer. So the energy is going to drop and everybody's going to go off and buy drinks and they're not going to dance and I'm not going to get booked again. Or if you're a producer and you're offering your stuff to a DJ, he's going to listen to it and go, well, that's just way too quiet. That's the argument. And I understand that. And it is a problem. But the interesting thing is, um, because I knew I was coming on the show, I've actually been uh, talking to, you know, friends and people I know who who make EDM about this issue. Um, and the message that comes back to me is actually it doesn't need to be a problem. I discovered something really interesting um, just today, which is it's easy to understand why this has happened when you look at the software that people are using to play out on, right? So Serato, for example, there's actually advice on their website about how to set up uh, the gain structure for your set. And I'm just going to read it. Their advice is play the loudest track in your playlist, set the input gain into the mixer so it's not clipping, then set the master output gain to the loudest level you're going to hit during your set, or to the specifications of the sound technician, if there is one, and you're good to go. Now that is of some of the worst advice I've ever heard. Because what they're saying is take the loudest song, the most crushed thing, yeah, get it as loud as possible in your mixer, and then turn up the output gain so that it sounds as loud as you want it in the room. Right? That means as soon as you take anything that's quieter, you're not going to be able to get it as loud because as soon as you do, it's going to clip. Right? The advice they should be giving, and now I've found this, I'm going to be talking to them about it and writing about it on my blog. Because, because, I think they're based in uh, Auckland, actually, so I can go drive down. Okay, and, yeah, and see you them. go and bang on their door <laughs> and give them a, well, the advice they should be giving. And if they do, the thing is, it'll make life easier for DJs, right? If they said instead, find the quietest song in your set and set it so that it's just not clipping and then turn that up so that it's as loud as you could possibly want it in the room, right, on the master, on the output gain, and I mean, depending on the sound card that you're using and the setup you've got, you might have to talk to the the engineer at the club to get a little bit more uh, gain on the on the, the mixer they have or whatever. But then you bring in a super loud track in comparison, it's going to sound way too loud, but you just turn it down. And then you can play whatever you like in your set. It could be from the 80s, super dynamic. It could be completely slammed, 21st century, you know, whatever. You're going to be able to balance the levels all the way through. Um, and that, to me, I mean, that explains to me where this problem comes from. Because people keep saying that to me, and I keep thinking, well, why don't they just adjust the levels so that they've got the headroom to do what they need to do? And the reason is they're getting the wrong advice from the, the guys who make the software. Um, same thing is used to be true of Tractor. Um, I found a, a really great blog post um, from the... Let me just find it. I've forgotten the name of the site over the Digital DJ Tips website. 
Um, and maybe if I share the link with this, you could perhaps put it in the show notes, which says how to set your levels in Tractor like a pro. And actually, the original advice in the uh, the post was similar to what I just said for Serato. You basically turn stuff down to begin with and then crank up the output gain. Since that post was written in 2011, Tractor has added a headroom setting in the mixer preferences, which by default is set to 6 dBs. Now, that's better than nothing, but if you want to play some older or more dynamic EDM as part of your set, if you just go in and change that preference and turn it down to like uh, 10 dBs of headroom and then turn up the output gain, again, you're good to go. You can play anything you like and, and suddenly all of that frustrating stuff about... Because yeah, I went to your community and put up a poll asking people had they kind of run into this problem um, and, and how do they deal with it? And there's the most popular answer was, no, they don't have this problem because they do exactly what I just said, which is adjust the playback level so that it works for them. But then other people said, yes, I do this because everybody else does, meaning have a problem getting their stuff loud enough in the clubs. And more of them say, yes, and I wish I didn't have to. I mean, nobody ticked the option in the poll saying, um, yes, but I like how it sounds. So it's like you said, everybody knows this is a problem. Everybody hates it. Um, and the solution is simple, but it needs to, because that's the other thing that surprised me is that DJs are artists, not technicians. Mostly, you know, they, they love music and they love making, help making people dance and they want to put an amazing set. When you look at Tractor and Serato, I was amazed at how technical and kind of difficult they were, you know, to use. I mean, even in comparison to, I mean, it sounds silly, but in comparison to say you look at Garage Band comes free on a Mac. Apple have done a fantastic job of making that accessible for non-technicians, right? So musicians can start quickly and easy, easily producing music for themselves. And I think if that was available to the DJ community, then this whole problem could maybe not go away, but at least kind of become that much easier for everybody. Um, so, you know, I really, I really feel sorry for you know, an aspiring DJ who just wants to play some great tunes they, they struggle through the manual of this software, um, doing their best, and they find it doesn't work. And that's just because it, the, the kind of the guidance they're being given is, is back to front. So we're going to wrap up in a moment, but, but to boil this down for the producer who's finished a song, finished a track, and, and they're about to master it themselves, what should they do? Should they slam it? Should they mix it or master it to a certain point, a certain, is there a benchmark? I mean, what advice would you give to them? How can they combat the loudness war, but not in a way that pushes the volume up even higher? So my advice is to uh, get hold of a loudness meter plugin. Um, we don't really have time to talk about it in detail, but there's recently there's been a new standard introduced called the loudness unit. It's an international standard for measuring loudness. Um, they're called Loudness Units Full Scale LUFS or LUFS, some people say. There are some really affordable or even free plugins out there that you can get. So do, do what you want to do creatively with your song or your tune without worrying about loudness at all. And then measure the loudness level. These loudness meters, they have different ways of measuring loudness. Look for the integrated loudness level, or sometimes called the program loudness an overall number that applies to the whole song. If that number is reading kind of minus 11, minus 12, I think you're good. 
the slammed stuff that's out there, like I say, it could be up at minus six, minus five, even minus four. I I just think it, you don't want to do that at this stage because the loudness management management that we're talking about is going to be everywhere. It's on all of the major streaming services so far, except for SoundCloud, and SoundCloud have told me they're going to do it as well. If you slam your stuff trying to get louder on SoundCloud, when they implement it, suddenly your music is going to sound worse than everything else. You want to future-proof your mixes. Um, you want to you avoid this trap. Don't be tempted to push the, the, the level really, really high. Go for minus 11, minus 12. Now, if you give that to a DJ, there is a risk that they're going to say, but it's not loud enough. Um, so you might want to consider doing a temporary master where you push the level harder in order to impress somebody to begin with. Um, if you give it to a DJ and they say it's too quiet, then you could talk to them about the the kind of the technique, the, the strategy that we talked about just there um, of going with the quieter song and getting the loudness to work for the quieter song and then turning the louder stuff down because then it's going to work in a club. So that, that problem goes away. If you're the DJ, you can do that yourself. So it's all good. Um, that way you've got the best possible sound. You've future-proofed the music. You know it's going to sound great on all of the online streaming platforms. It's also, by the way, going to sound great on vinyl because the technical restrictions of the vinyl format mean that you can't do this super hot stuff. If the engineer tries to cut it as hot as some of these um, loudness war mixes, it's going to burn out the head on the cut on the lathe. Um, so they just won't do it. They'll turn it down as well. So do a more dynamic mix or master. It's going to sound fantastic on vinyl. It's going to sound fantastic everywhere. Um, that's my advice. I just think, you know, it's it takes guts because, and I do understand the, the concern that everybody has. You know, nobody wants their stuff to be rejected just because it's not loud enough. Um, but if we all uh, kind of succumb to that, bow down to that pressure, the problem's never going to get any better. Um, you know, if, I mean, if you're mixing and mastering your stuff with that super slammed sound and you love it, then of course you should, that's what you should do. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's your music. I, I'm not kind of standing going, oh no, you must do this. <laughs> um, but if you're somebody who loves the, the sound of his mix and then you get to the, the stage where you're trying to master it yourself and you slam it and you go, well, it's louder, but I just don't like it as much. You know, I would say have the courage of your convictions, you know, um, start spreading the word about making it more dynamic. If you absolutely have to do a super loud version that's going to be played out in clubs, um, but keep the main master that you release as more dynamic, you know, that could be a kind of halfway house until the rest of the world catches up and realizes, you know, what the best thing to do is. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I genuinely believe at this point, it used to, five or 10 years ago when I was first talking about this stuff, I did, I felt like a, a kind of a professor kind of wagging my finger at people and going, you naughty boy, you made your song unnecessarily loud. Now, because of loudness management, because most people discover music online, you know, um, they, they find it on Pandora, they find it on uh, YouTube. SoundCloud is going to have loudness management and you want the music to sound the best it possibly can in that situation. And the way to do that is to have a really good balance between loudness and dynamics rather than just slamming it. Absolutely. Ian, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, now, for those who want to learn more about you and, and what you do, 
Where can people find you online? What's your website, et cetera? So it's productionadvice.co.uk. Uh, or if they're interested in, in mastering in general, you could listen to you could listen to the podcast, which is at themasteringshow.com. In fact, the first uh, six or seven episodes of that is kind of an audio equivalent of the, the free e-course that I mentioned. So um, I kind of go through all the stages in the mastering chain and really break it down and try and explain the reasoning behind you know, wh- what I do and why I do it and how they can do it. So that could be a, a really good kind of starter for anybody if, if they enjoy, well, I'm assuming they listen to, enjoy listening to podcasts because they're listening to this. Um, and yeah, I'm on Facebook and Twitter um, at Ian Shepherd on Twitter. Uh, you can search for me on Facebook and find me. Um, I love talking to people. Uh, I used to say, oh, just ask me any question you like. But these days I get so many requests, so I can't promise to be able to answer them all. But um, yeah, I definitely like to say hi to people. And you know, there's loads more information on all of these topics on my website. And I am, especially as a result of this interview and the research I've been doing, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be going for this issue with EDM because I think there's a real opportunity to, to change the perception. I think that, you know, the, the idea that everything has to be slammed to work actually is a red herring. Um, so I'm going to be talking about it more on the website in future. Um, and I would love people to help me out if they, if they agree with me. 